have this son and daughter of Midgard not bled their last, not had the very marrow scraped from their bones in service of the grand tale they have helped to recapture, the tale of the god of thunder himself. Can they not rest? Can they not ascend to Valhalla or even descend to hell, but battle no more? But Miles, Walter Simonson agreed to do an interview with us. Oh, well, in that case... I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! An unexpected extra episode of our 14-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold, we have Walter Simonson on the show. Walter, thank you so, so much for agreeing to talk to us. It's my pleasure to be here, folks. Well, I got, I mean, Elizabeth, we have so many questions that we've like talked between ourselves about asking Walter (laughs) Simonson. Uh, I guess we can just sort of dive on in at the beginning. So how did you come to work on Thor in the first place? Um, in the, in the run that I did in the eighties, in 83, I was asked by Mark Grunewald, who was the editor of the book at the time, if I would be interested in writing and drawing the comic. Um, I'd always, uh, I'd always been interested in Norse mythology. I was interested as a kid. My parents had a book about the stuff. I read it. I loved it. Um, I'm not sure maybe because everything dies at the end, you know, you're young, that's not such a big deal, <laughs> but, uh, I did love the stuff. I discovered Marvel's Thor in about 65 when I was in college and I was thrilled to discover it because really it was uh, the Norse myth. I mean, the fact that he didn't have red hair or beard or goat cherry, or I didn't care. I just thought it was really cool. I loved it. Back then continuity wasn't as big of an issue as it might be now, but I thought it was great. And so I read it. Uh, yeah, I read all the Marvel comics after a while, but Thor was my entryway into that. And in a sense, my entryway into a career in comic books in the long run. Uh, the work that Stan and Jack did in that book and other books as well at Marvel uh, kind of got me going in that direction. So in the 70s, I did a year's worth of Thor's. I did layouts for Thor with Len Wein writing it and uh, mostly Tony Dezimiga doing the finishes. That was in 77, 78. Len was the editor and the writer. He asked me to do it. I mean, I the fact I was a big Thor fan was not unknown in the office. And then in 83, um, when there had been, I think, several different people doing the book over uh, six, eight months, different covers, different writers, uh, and so on, uh, Mark Grunewald, who, I, I should say the late Mark Grunewald, who was just a wonderful editor, um, and a real, he was like the blood of Marvel is what he was. He was such a Marvel guy. And he talked to me about it, and I had, back in, when I was in college, I had come up with an idea, I was a big Thor fan, I'd come up with an idea for a Thor story. And I had written out a little of it. I'd written, uh, I'd, I'd partially drawn a cover, which I no longer can find. But I had then about 30 pages of what would have been the climax of my story. Uh, ink, penciling and inking it. I didn't put any word balloons in there. I kind of didn't really think of myself as a writer. So I, I did that much of it. And I thought, you know, this inking it was all a technical pen, like uh, rapidograph inking. And I didn't know about whiteout. So all the stars and the galaxies... I would circle a little circle of white, and I would use a rapidograph to fill in around it. Oh, I didn't man. know about brushes either, so it was really <laughs> it was quite labor intensive. But you know, you're young. What do you know? So I drew it. For, I drew about thirty pages worth, and then I said, you know, I can see my inking is not what it should be here. I'm going to set this aside, 
and I'm going to come back to it when my inking is better. And 14 years later, Mark Rolla asked me to draw the book. And by that time, I thought my inking was better. And so the story that I had begun to develop in 67, 68, uh, became really the Surter Saga, the first long story I did when I was doing Thor. A lot of it's different. Uh, I, I added a lot of stuff. I did not invent Beta Ray Bill until I was doing the actual Marvel comic. But there is some stuff that was quite similar. And the idea of the great sword and Surter trying to light it in the eternal flame of Asgard and, and bringing about the doom of everything. That's really from that original idea. So I had talked about that to Mark some, you know, it'd come up in conversations about, you know, our enthusiasm for Marvel one way or another. And, uh, he remembered that. So he, I mean, he don't want to do that story, especially, but he, he got a hold of me, asked if I'd be interested in writing and drawing the book. He was very clear that anything I wanted to do was going to be fine. I could even kill the character and start over again if I wanted to. He didn't He didn't say I had to do that. He just said, this is just to show you that really you have a free hand. I, I, essentially, I had carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do in that book. And so, and at the time, I had written, I'd only just begun writing really a year, a little more earlier. So I'd written maybe, I'm trying to think now, seven, eight comics Maybe maybe ten comics worth of stuff. I'd written a graphic novel by then of the Star Slammers, right? Yeah, uh, for the Epic line. But I really, you know, I I was still a pretty new writer at the time. I took that over, but that's how it worked. It really. Mark asked me to do it, gave me a free hand, and the the good part about that, as I've said elsewhere, is that you know the book wasn't doing very well. So if it tanked, nobody would blame me. If it did well, they'd say, "Wow, that Simonson guy is a genius." <laughs> So that's really how it worked out. That's how I got in the book. Oh, man. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of um, when Chris Claremont and, well, I guess before him, Len Wein, uh, sort of relaunched the X-Men in the 70s where it was sort of low stakes so they could do whatever they wanted. They could have the Shi'ar Empire and Leprechauns and Banshee's Castle. And it sounds like you had that same level of freedom, being able to have this horse-faced alien show up to lift Beta Ray Bill, being able to have everything build for a year toward, you know, a mini version of Ragnarok itself. Like, that's one of the things I, I love about your run so much is just that it does things that you would not expect to happen, especially especially so immediately in someone's run. Well, it was, it was, I mean, it was really, you know, I just had a free hand and I was such a new writer that there was a lot of stuff I didn't, there weren't any rules I was thinking about that I should probably have been paying attention to. And also I was, I was pretty familiar with the Norse myth and my, my, one of my ideas in the back of my mind generally was that I wanted to bring more of the mythological stuff into the comic for one thing. I mean, that's what sets Thor apart as a, as a superhero or as a character from other characters in the Marvel universe or from other characters in everybody's universe um, is the Norse myth aspect of it. I didn't want to just tell the Norse myths because really, if you do that, well, any reader could go out and buy a book in a bookstore and read them all. And they're already there. They're already in print. There are already some great versions out there. So I wanted to use the myths, but not necessarily uh, copy them. I just wanted to use them as a springboard into other ideas. And the other thing I was trying to do right in the beginning, and with Beta Ray Bill, as it turned out, was at that time the comic had been going for about 20 years. And I wanted to try and tell some story that they begin with, that, or stories in general, that did not feel like stories that you had read before. When I was reading Marvel in the 60s, I read them religiously for several years. And then after, from 65 to about 69, and somewhere around 69, 68, 69, they began repeating stories. 
you know, Galactus would come back for the third time, or the wizard would turn the thing bad again, or, you know, I mean, I understand that, I get how that works, um, but my interest in the comics at that time, in Marvel comics, waned. I still kept track of them, I, and I broadened out and began reading other comics as well, DCs and other stuff, but uh, I did not want to be that guy, I didn't want to be the writer who kind of just went back over old ground, um, I mean, in a way, I'd had a chance to do that. Maybe it gave me some freedom. The fact that Len and I had done the book in the late 70s, we did a very Stanley, Jack Kirby-influenced comic. It had, you know, I had the Destroyer, it had Loki. I mean, stuff that I used myself later in, in my own run. But it basically, I kind of did the Jack Kirby Asgard with ramps and science fiction buildings. And we did a lot of stuff with some of the Marvel villains on Earth later in the run. And so... When I got a hold of Thor as a writer and artist and had a free hand, I sort of, I think probably the fact that I had already done kind of the Marvel Thor, a very straightforward Marvel Thor, gave me, you know, perhaps the courage to try something else. And also the so my first idea was if I'm doing stories no one's done before, well, no one's really picked up the hammer. It's got that inscription on it, whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. But really, nobody's done it. Now, there was actually a Kirby, a Lee Kirby book where where Loki picked it up. He, he had some extra juice from the Norn Queen. And I remember reading that and going, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> so that's not happening. Just so I just that ignored part. that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> but basically... The idea behind Bill was to invent somebody. Now, they could actually pick up the hammer. My my feeling was in 20 years in the Marvel Universe, really nobody had picked it up. And what that meant to me as a storyteller was that nobody in the Marvel Universe could pick it up at that time. There were no characters who could do it. Now, I, I realized that by telling that story, I was letting the genie out of the bottle and that down the road, everybody would want their favorite character to pick it up. But they're all wrong. <laughs> those are in, those are incorrect stories. Only only Bill could pick it up. So, um, but that was so I I really designed Bill from the ground up to be the guy who could pick up the hammer. And since he was as a new character, I felt I had the the room to do that. And and Mark really gave me the freedom to tackle the book any way I wanted. So it worked out pretty well. I remember there was debate in our comments on our blog about Beta Ray Bill about how well formed he was that a lot of people assumed that you ha kind of had him in reserve, like you'd already created him and were just waiting for a place to put him. No, no, he was completely out of the book. If you, I have a Facebook page, the official Walter Simonson page, which is as close to a website as I have. And if you're on Facebook, you can go there and you can just like the page and then you can see everything. I don't have, you don't have to be allowed in. And somewhere in those notes, uh, there is, I think I wrote a note about the creation of Bill, but Bill was really, he was an idea from the beginning when I started thinking about who I wanted to lift the hammer, how that was going to work, why nobody in the Marvel Universe had done it before, and what that meant. And so that's all. The, the one thing I'll say, just because it was funny, is that the name Beta Ray Bill really comes from my my old SF reading back when I was younger. When I was in eighth grade through, well, into my early years in New York, 74, 75, I read a lot of science fiction. So I read all the classic guys, the Asimovs and the Del Rays and Murray Leinster, a lot of guys, and uh, Heinlein. Um, and one of the things I loved about those books was, you know, it was, it, it, you don't want to take too much time explaining how people learn languages. So everybody seems to wander around, especially in pulp science fiction. You wander around having a universal translator on your belt, you know, and whoever you meet, whatever language they speak, it just comes in, goes in the translator, comes out as English. And so I didn't bother doing that in Thor, but my feeling is that Beta Ray Bill isn't really his name. I have no idea what it is. He has no lips. 
I don't know how he speaks, but it's a comic book. I don't have to worry about it. But basically, uh, you know, whatever his name is, it got scram scrazzled through the Universal Translator. It came out as Beta Ray Bill. And in, in real life, where it came from was, I mean, Marvel always had that kind of Stanley alliteration, which I always liked. And I thought about it. I wanted something that had a kind of a science fiction equality because that's what, you know, Bill was and his ship scuttlebutt and his, sleep, his deep sleep cough and all that. Basically, Bill... I gave him a science fiction background, so I wanted something that sounded sort of science fiction-y. So gamma rays in the Marvel Universe were already taken. <laughs> there, was, there was already a gamma ray guy. And, and alpha rays, the A doesn't have a hard sound. It's a vowel. hasn't got a hard sound to it. I liked beta ray. I liked the B because you get more alliteration with that. Although beta rays are in real life. I think they're just like loose electrons. They're not really very powerful, but that doesn't really matter. It, just was, it was the right sound. Initially, I'd thought of beta ray Jones. Because what I wanted was I wanted, Bill was essentially representative. He was kind of an everyman for his people. Now, really, he wasn't everyman. He was an astounding hero for his people. But he represented them in a way that was an everyman kind of guy. And so I wanted, in English, an everyman kind of name. I think the most common name in English is Johnson. At least it used to be. Jones is common. So I, my first thought, well, I wanted something shorter than Johnson. I wanted a short name like Jones. But Jones, you know, they already had a Louise Jones editing. They had a Rick Jones and the Hulk. They, had, they were doing an Indiana Jones comic right at that time. And so I said, eh, I can't be using Jones. This is not going to work out. And then I got the alliteration business and said, oh, Bill, like William, that's a pretty standard name. Uh, and so I liked and I like the alliteration. So that's really where the name came from. So I did, I did think a great deal about all the stuff that went into Bill, but it was all the thought I was doing when I started the book, it was not stuff I had in reserve somewhere and said, oh, good, I can use it here. It was all stuff that came out of the comic. That's awesome. And actually, that makes me think of a question that one of our listeners asked that I had no idea about. So in the comic, Beta Ray Bill's sort of war form, because um, he doesn't look like normal Corbinites, uh, his sort of warrior form, they said it was based on one of the fiercest carnivores of their planet. Did you have something in mind for like what that would have looked like before it got sort of... Uh, no. Not, not at all. Um, <laughs> I just thought that that was, I, what I wanted was, he was essentially a tortured soul. I mean, he went through hell so that he could guard his people. I mean, I, and I will say, haven't they blown away all the Corbinites now? I mean, A, I didn't give his planet a name or I didn't name the people. That's all post my story. Yeah. Um, and B, didn't all of his people die eventually? Um, yeah, I think Galactus actually killed most or all of them at one yes. point. And so, you know, so from my point of view at this point, Bill is like one of Marvel's biggest failures. I mean, as a character, right? It would not be the bill I was writing. That's perfectly fine. You do the character you do. It's, if you build your your castle in the sandbox in a, in a in a shared world like that, when you leave, somebody else comes in. They knock over your castle. They build their own. That's perfectly fine. But I thought it was very amusing that Bill was designed as this great hero, and everybody he, he was trying to save is all they're all dead. Yeah. Somebody didn't read my comic and kind of get what I was doing. That's all. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but as far as the as far as the creature, I didn't. I never thought about what it was. I just thought that he needed to be a really fierce warrior. Um, whatever he had been before, you know, it's like the Captain America transformation. Had, I mean, I'm not saying he was a Casper milk toast to start with, but he was an ordinary guy with extraordinary insides that they were able to read a scientist on his planet were able to recognize and they were able they chose him after a you know series of games or whatever it was so he probably was stronger even as a, as a as a regular guy but basically they combined him with a form that would make him the most powerful warrior they were capable of creating and it, apparently it was very painful it was a very terrible process and but he was willing to put up with it in order to become this hero 
this this guardian for his people. Um, I didn't design the character. The design of the character itself was really done. And I will say, no one ever made a horse reference until I told people that's where the design came from. Now, everybody makes that reference, but it was never, nobody ever said that before. I've met people that said, oh, yeah, yeah, I said that, but I never saw it. Nobody ever got a hold of me and said that. But what it was was um, I wanted a character who would be both frightening and yet noble, um, in a sense, because in comics back then, comic books didn't come out in reprints. There weren't these arcs that people reprint in hardcovers and softcovers. They weren't reissued. You got them on the stands, you read them that month, and then they were gone. You could go to a comic shop and buy them, but you had to kind of make some effort if you missed an issue. So most it was kind of like magical corn. It would appear, and you'd grab it, and then it would vanish. And in Bill's case, I wanted, as I said elsewhere, kind of a shortcut to meaning. I wanted um, the, I wanted readers to know what he was, but I also want to fool them. Now, when you're writing a story, you want to play fair with your readers if you can, but you also want to mislead them because you don't want your readers reading your comic and going, oh, well, I know where this is coming out. This is coming out right here. And you're going, oh, well, you know, and then you haven't surprised them. Um, so in Bill's case, and in the comics back in those days, maybe more than now when you have kind of longer arcs and you can, you can develop more, Mostly, you know, bad guys looked like bad guys. They looked kind of like monsters. They looked evil. They had little mustaches or whatever they had. Um, and so I wanted Bill to look like a monster because then people would assume he was a bad guy, which I have to say, everybody did. Nobody read that comic. I wrote all the letters. I wrote my own letter columns. And in the letters I got, nobody ever wrote and said, wait, Bill just picked up the hammer. He can't be a bad guy. He must be worthy. Everybody wrote in and said, Simonson, you're screwing up the story. <laughs> they, they used other words I can't use in this broadcast. <laughs> but, basically, but, but basically, they just they, they thought I was just completely off the rails. And, of course, they were so angry. They had to go out and buy the next issue to you know, see what a jerk I'd been. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of people just enjoyed it. They weren't all angry, of course. But, but basically, I made Bill look like a monster because – that would make people think he was evil. Therefore, he shouldn't be picking up the hammer. How is this possible? On the other side of it, I did use a horse's skull. I mean, I just used it in the, in the vaguest possible way. I was a geo major in college before I got into, com- into art school and comics. I was uh, heading for paleontology. I saw a lot of skulls. The college I went to had a, a full mounted horse skeleton in the, uh, in the museum that they had. And so I was familiar with what they looked like. I did not go back and dig one out and look at it carefully. But that big gap behind Thor, uh, Bale's teeth, that's where that comes from. That comes from the way a horse is you know, where you put the bit and the rein and stuff in a horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. So it was designed along those lines and kind of long like a horse's skull and kind of those flat, those front teeth, um, a little like a horse. And that's because in, in real life, the skull is really the foundation of beauty. It can be the foundation of ugliness as well, but it is the foundation of beauty. People who are beautiful or things that are beautiful, horses, which are really elegant and gorgeous looking, the skull is the structure that makes that possible. And so, but skulls also have, you know, in our culture, a kind of uh, association with death or with horror or whatever. So I thought I was going for kind of a twofold thing. I did not expect any reader to read this and go, or to read Bill and go, oh, look, it's kind of death mixed with nobility. You know, it's just, but that's where I got the idea from. And so that's why I had a skull, and that's why I used that particular skull, because horses themselves are gorgeous. And so I thought I could kind of, you know, try and get a little affinity in both directions going for the character. That's how that worked out. 
And that, uh, that sort of juxtaposition of nobility and kind of monstrousness, like the, the sort of beautiful soul within this monstrous form, I feel like we could just see a lot of that in the comic, um, partially through Bill and Thor's brotherhood, but a lot of it seems to be in the relationship between Beta Ray Bill and the Lady Sif, which I know to us, that was one of the more compelling relationships in, in the entire run. And so we sort of kept going well, back. Well, I, and- I thought she got it. Mm-hmm. She under she she understood Bill better than a lot of the people. I think a lot of the guys that were floating around and, and understood, and they did have an affinity. I, if I'd stayed in the book a lot longer, I'm not sure where that would have gone. I didn't have it. I didn't have it planned out. I did plan stuff out in advance. I used to actually have a uh, uh, well, I guess now it'd be a spreadsheet. I didn't know anything about spreadsheets back then. I don't know much about them now, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> but I made a uh, grid. Or down one side, I would have all the issue numbers, like the next 10 issues. And across the top, I had every character, all the, you know, the main ones and the supporting cast. And then I would fill in little, little boxes along the way. Okay, by this issue, I want Volstag to be here. By this issue, I want this guy to be doing this. In this issue, Hogan will meet up with uh, Hildy. In this issue, Sif will be doing this. In this issue, the Enchantress will be here or Laurel will be here. So I made flow sheets as I went along or spreadsheets in order to try and keep it all straight. There were a lot of characters. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> So going back to something you were mentioning earlier, you talked about how one of the things that you brought to Thor was your love of Norse mythology. And that's definitely something that we noticed as well, but that you didn't want to have it be just straight up Norse mythology. And and I keep coming back, uh, as, as you were describing that, to the way you handled the realm of the Dark Elves, like having the sort of Celtic realm of the fairy with Svartalfheim, the realm of the Dark Elves and Norse mythology, sort of merged into one. And so I guess I just wanted to ask, like, as you were adding Norse mythological elements, how did you decide which ones you wanted to modify, which ones you wanted to just sort of play straight? Well, I read a lot of, I, I mean, I read a lot of stuff at the time, and, and it wasn't just Norse myths. I mean, there, there are only a certain number of myths. Um, one book will kind of cover them uh, so that uh, there's, there's a lot to mine. There's, there's a lot of hints about stuff. But there's a lot of Northern European stories that aren't just out of Norse mythology, kind of related and the, the the Celtic fairy faith is one of those. So I went back, and, and there was a woman, I think her name was Catherine Briggs, I believe, not Kathleen. I'm going to say Catherine Briggs. <laughs> um, Catherine Briggs wrote several books. This is back in the 80s. Um, about uh, sort of folk and fairy tales out of Great Britain, out of the Celtic world. Um, I read a couple of those. They were really for general audiences. They were great. Um, I really enjoyed it, and that's really where Malekith the Accursed comes from. Not so much the character, but the name itself. There is a story in one of those tales, and I don't remember, I don't remember the story anymore, but there was a, a female character, a girl, I think it was a little, a little girl, uh, named Malakin. And, and I, I like that name. I like, I like the Mal because, you know, I guess probably out of Latin or whatever it means, evil or bad or whatever it means. Right. Um, so you have Mal de Mer in French for seasickness. Um, and I and so I I changed it to Kiff. I wanted uh, I wanted I liked the Kiff and Kin idea, um, but I liked the Mal in the beginning, and I liked the fact that he, you know, he might be the evil side of all of us. And so that was where that name came from. But also just the there are you know in the Norse myths you had the Svartalfheims, the dark elves, which in some stories that people just think that's I mean I think those are more dwarves than they are actual fairies. Um, or elves, but you know, again, there I've got plenty of room to maneuver. I'm, I'm not trying to explain theology in my comic. I'm just trying to tell stories. <laughs> so, um, so I worked out the dark elves. I put Malekith in charge of them. I made him, you know, half black, half white, uh, down the middle, just because it 
it amused me. It looked kind of cool and kind of he didn't. His nature was really pretty evil, but um, but some of the stuff and uh, one of the stories in the beginning of it, uh, I seem to remember there was a girl who was being uh, was it the girl who was in prison being held and somebody I think jams a hamburger into her mouth and she disappears in a puff of smoke. <laughs> oh yeah, um, yeah. It was kind of evil, and that that's really I mean that was inspired by the the these the, the stories about the the Celtic fairies and elves, where iron is is inimical to them, and also uh, food, ordinary food. If you've been sucked into the fairy world and eaten some of the fairy food, mortal food becomes deadly to you. And so some of that stuff was taken from there. But I just you know I I couldn't I couldn't give you a hard and fast rule for what I decided to use or not use. I just I used stuff that struck my fancy and I thought could make I could make stories out of. I mean later on in a whole different vein. Um, when I'm doing a book like that, uh, currently doing on Ragnarok, I, I get ideas, I write them down. Some of them never come to fruition. I have, I, by the time I'm done a book, I usually have more ideas in the idea file than I've actually been able to do in an entire run of a comic. But um, one of the ideas I had when I was doing Thor, just kind of out in the middle of nowhere, was I, I'm a huge Carl Barks fan. Big fan of Donald Duck, big fan of his Uncle Scrooge oh, stories. Oh, the frog stuff. Fabulous stories. Yeah. So, so I wrote down a note that said, Tip of the hat to Carl Barks. That was my entire note. <laughs> sometimes the notes are whole plots. Sometimes they're a, a note like that, no more than that. Sometimes a couple lines of dialogue. And in the Thor run, well, after Surtur, I, I got to a point where I suddenly, and I don't even know how I got there, I mean, I, where my brain went, but my brain suddenly went, oh, you know, I could do that tribute to Carl Barks right here. <laughs> and that's what led to the, the Thor frog story. I did think about changing Thor into a duck initially but because of Carl Bark. Yeah, it would have been something different. But I did think two things. One, Marvel already had a Howard the Duck. And I didn't want to get interfere with that. I mean, I didn't want to get crossed up on that. And the other thing is that, you know, a lot of fairy tales, the handsome prince gets turned into a frog. Of so course. frogs seem to work pretty well. So that's what that, but that was what inspired that story. Why I went the way I did or how I, how I reached where I said, Oh, I got to do a frog right now. I don't know, but I did have that <laughs> note. And that was where that story came from out of that one note I wrote a year or two earlier. Yeah. In your run, we've always thought that Thor definitely had a consistent, well thought out character arc of becoming more mature and more independent, kind of more of a true hero. So we were wondering where Frog Thor fit in that journey. Like, what did that do for the character of Thor? <laughs> Aside from coming well, up with an amazing was, visual. I mean, in part, it was just, it was just, you know, I just like telling stories. And I, I, the, the first two issues, especially where it's the frog rat war in Central Park, um, came from a couple of different things. One, it's really a parody of, of my own stuff. It's like, you know, it's like epic fantasy, except it's frogs and rats. But it's still, you know, one of the lessons I got from Stan and Jack a million years earlier when I was reading them is you can pretty much do anything in one of these comics if you keep a straight face and mm-hmm. don't break faith. Well, you keep a straight face and don't break faith with your audience. So I don't want to do stories where they're like, with full of stupid stuff, where we're all going nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Aren't we clever? Aren't we superior to the material? I just want to tell stories that people enjoy. And so I did a frog rat war, but I did it perfectly straight. I got to include the urban legend of all the alligators in the New York sewers. I included one of the X-Men, one of the Morlocks, uh, Piper. And uh, that made it, you know, it, 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 but it gave me a very straightforward fight. Now, I used to live in Manhattan. We used to live in Manhattan many years ago, and we were on the west side, and we weren't too far from the reservoir, so we were in Central Park a lot, and, and you would see signs up that said, you know, don't let your pets hear rat poison. 
and they would have rat poison. I never saw any. I didn't go looking for it. Um, so some of the ideas just came from living in that space, not far from the reservoir, where people used to run around it and do. You know, it wasn't really used for water for the city. I don't think at the time much, um, but it still, you know, it gave me a. It gave me a landscape for the story. And the other thing, and I, I, I don't claim any uh, a direct connection by this because that would be a little too bold, but when I was in college, uh, initially as a geo major, it was liberal arts school, I had, um, we had to do a bunch of reading, had a humanities course my freshman year, and reread re-read one or two of the plays of Aristophanes, like The Birds. You might even have, was he have one called The Frogs? I don't remember now. I think but so. There were, but they were like animal, almost like animal plays. And, and so, you know, I, I knew that stuff had been done. I mean, what it, what it probably gave me was permission to do it in a sense that, oh, well, it was good enough for Aristophanes. I can, I can ride in his coattails any day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the frog story came from. And it just was really, I mean, it also, I have to say, that's a story that the third chapter, when everything wraps up, I'm, that plot worked out in a way I was completely delighted by. I'm, it's one of my favorite plots, especially at the end where they toss Loki the real hammer and he falls over. Oh, yeah. I love that part. <laughs> and, uh, and that just cracked me up. It just was, you know, it, it just all worked out like a like an intricate clock. It all kind of came together. And, I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't had that thought when I said Carl Barks, tip of the hat, you know, none of that stuff. But, but that story, I mean, that's the one story I did where in the letters I got, about half the letters were people going, uh, is this meant to be funny? They weren't really, they weren't negative. I mean, you, you always got a couple of negative letters, which I, I kind of like because they were often more interesting and all the, you know, why wow, this is great, as good as sliced bread. I mean, I love getting good letters. Don't get me wrong. I'm not soliciting for bad letters now, but, but it was something where you often, you had to answer them with a little more, a little more thought sometimes, but you had a lot of good letters. And I, on that, it mostly, I got like 95% good mail, maybe more than that. Um, well, I, I wrote the letter columns in kind of in a Marvel editorial voice. And, uh, so I read everything and I would usually include one negative letter per letter column, just because it would give me a chance to answer something that somebody had some question about in a way I thought was illuminating. Uh, and at the same time, it might give the impression that I was getting like, you know, a quarter of you know, four letters in the letter column. One of them is bad. 75, 75% of my letters are bad, are good. And, 25% bad, and that was not true. It was really much more, very, much positive and very, much more positive, very little negative. But on that story, half letters were, were positive, half letters were puzzled. <laughs> Just sort of confused. <laughs> yeah, was this meant to be? And yet here, more than 30 years after, I think it's been more than 30 years now that that stuff came out, the one of the, say, three or maybe four stories I hear most about from anybody at a convention is the Thor Frog story. And nobody ever comes up and is pissy about it. They, they all love it. <laughs> yeah, so, I remember when we were first starting the podcast, when we were, you know, telling people what we wanted to do, trying to raise the funds to do the production and stuff. That was, we like had to pick out the most iconic Thor stories to talk about what we were covering. And that was one of the ones we kept coming back to because everybody remembers Frog Thor so fondly. <laughs> just because it's so fun and weird and great. Well, it's just, you know, I, I got to say, uh, yeah, you do these stories back, especially back then, you can expect them to disappear you know, be used to wrap fish with next week or whatever, you know, often paper recycling. And, and the Thor frog has had a much longer lifespan than I would ever have expected. I mean, I know <laughs> they've made an actual Thor frog now. I think Chris Eliopoulos might have been responsible for that, or maybe somebody else was, but I think he did a miniseries with that, with the Thor, with Throg, as he's now called. Yep. And he actually used one of the, one of the frogs that was in the original story, I think, got transformed into Throg. So now they're like little sculptures of the Thor frog and 
you know, a bust. So it just cracks me up. <laughs> well, and I was looking at the uh, the new like double gatefold cover that Russell Dodderman did for Thor number 700 coming up. It's got all these different versions of Thor on it. And of course, Frog Thor is one of them right there in with oh, everybody well, else. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> oh, but yeah. You just, you know, honestly, you put the stuff out there, you just never know. Right. You really don't know what's going to catch somebody's fancy. <laughs> um, and so talking about sort of things coming together, and you mentioned earlier uh, Piper, the Morlock that was used in the Frog Thor story. One of the things that we were were intrigued by, um, especially, you know, both of us also being big X-Men fans, were the number of crossovers and references you had to other comics. Um, some big events, like, you know, you had Curse from Secret Wars 2, you even had the uh, Mephisto versus the Avengers right at the end of your run. But right. then a lot, of, a lot of crossovers as well with, like, uh, Louise Simonson's books, like Power Pack and, and X-Factor, which I guess you were working on at the same time as well. So how did you go about sort of deciding what you wanted to bring in, what you wanted to sort of give a wide berth to? Like with Secret Wars 1, I know, Thor goes into a room, and then he comes out, and it's just not discussed. Well, it's, uh, I mean, some of it was different. Some of the stuff, like the stuff like that, Secret Wars crossovers, and whatever that thing was at the end, toward the end, I forget what the, heck the crossover was now, um, where I had to have a page, and when Sal was drawing, there was some page that was related to a bunch of Avengers or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was all dictated. That was all stuff that comics were sort of in transition to me at that time. Um, when I started doing Thor in 83, it was really, creativity was bottom up. I was given the Thor book, and essentially, I was given my head to do whatever I wanted to. Now, I never had that option again. When I did the Fantastic Four a few years later, uh, I was given a lot of room, but because they just had a bunch of issues in which some of the, a couple of the FF weren't in, I think Steve Englehart may have written them out for a while, I was told, you, you're going to do it, but you have to have these four characters in every issue. They cannot be somewhere else. They have to be in the issue. And, I mean, I get it. At the same time, that's the beginning of creativity directed from the top down, which is a different thing. And so that was evolving during the last few years I was at Marvel. Um, I think some of it really grew out of that, the initial crossover that they did, the Mutant Massacre. I mean, it was kind of in the ether already. They did. There was some book, maybe Bill Matlow wrote it, that was going to be an Olympic uh, book of some kind, maybe for the 80 Olympics. We ended up not going to the 80 Olympics because uh, we boycotted them under the president's directive. But uh, there was a book, like a large treasury edition or something of that sort, that was like all the Marvel superheroes. And they, they gave it some other name and put it out anyway. We probably rewrote a lot of it. Um, so the idea of a lot of characters together in some story was, that was evolving at the time. That was developing. Um, in the case of Mutant Massacre, that really happened because by that time, Weezy was freelancing. Chris had written the X-Men. And he, he was writing it, and he was, you know, he'd worked for her. And they were really good friends. And essentially what happened was Chris and Weezy, you know, also this is back in the day when everybody lived in New York. So you went to the office to turn your pages in. No Internet, no FedEx to speak of. Um, you lived in the city if you wanted to do comic books. And that meant, for example, I knew all the guys in my generation personally and some of the ones that came after. Um, I don't know if that would be true from a lot of guys in comics these days, because you could live anywhere and do this stuff. So you would come in, and you would see original art. You'd see pages going by. I was at, you know, when I was at D.C. in my early days, I saw Burma Skies come in from Alex Toth, which was an astounding job. Or I would see Tarzan pages from Joe Kubert. Mm-hmm. Or I would see Bernie Wrightson pages on the Swamp Thing. Um, and I can't tell you how electrifying that was. 
to be able to see that work, to be inspired by it, to be angered by it, because the other guys are so much better than you were. <laughs> um, it was great. And it's, it's something I don't know if that's even possible now. I, you know, I, I think mostly, I don't know if anybody goes into a company and takes their pages anymore. Probably not. They probably do what I do, which is you scan everything. I think so, so yeah. So, and the Mutant Massacre, that was still, we were all still in the office a lot. And Wheezy and Chris bumped, bumped into each other at the, I think it probably at the office. And Chris was saying that he was going to do a story, an issue in which he was going to kill a bunch of Morlocks. He had, he'd invented the Morlocks. He and, I don't remember, was that John that was originally on the Morlocks, the first Morlock stuff? Or was that after John? I can't I think, remember. I know Paul um, Smith did some with like Callisto and stuff. Yeah, I think it was Paul Smith. It might have been Paul, but Paul, at some point, Paul drew the underground world of Morlocks. And he drew, you know, the way artists want to do is Marvel style stuff. You're inspired by things. He drew this vast underground thing that went on for like a billion miles of billions of people and billions of Morlocks, which is really way, 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 way bigger than Chris had envisioned. And it was made a lot more characters. And Chris thought, I got, I got to cut this down. So he had an idea. He had really, literally, he had an idea that he was going to do a story in which he was going to like, you know, kill a bunch of Morlocks and kind of bring it back down to a more manageable level. And Wheezy, and this is my, this is how I remember it. You'd have to ask her to see if she really remembers it the same way. But Wheezy basically, well, Chris, that's, I mean, she was, had been his editor. She said, that's too big an idea. You've got to have, there's got to be more stuff. And, and she jumped in, Chris jumped in, and the two of them began working out something, a bigger story. And then, of course, uh, what year did that come out? 80, well, she was already writing, so it had to be, we were married by then. So, I mean, we were dating a long time before that, but, so I knew about it, and I said, Oh, you guys are gonna do this? Sounds like fun. I want to play. This sounds. This sounds really cool. <laughs> and essentially, between the three of us, we were we were doing X Men, X Factor, New Mutants, Power Pack, and Thor. I think those are the titles that were in that that Mutant Massacre originally. Mm-hmm. And so um, she, or why we all we sat down, we worked it all out. We worked it out in a way where if you were only reading Thor. You wouldn't be left behind. If you were only reading the X-Men, you wouldn't be left behind. But if you read all the books, you'd get a bigger story. And we even, you know, I wrote, I drew up a, uh, kind of a plumbing diagram that they released as a two-color poster to comic shops, black and red. Oh yeah, I remember that. That showed, you know, uh, directions for how you would read these. But if you wanted to read them all, read them in this order or read them like this. So Mutant Massacre was completely organic. It was something that really, it came from the bottom up. Um, it also came out on September. Wheezy, when she was an editor, was always interested in kind of experimenting with stuff. And at that time, September was a bad sales month. It just was always just a lousy month for sales. And, and the belief was, our, the, the common wisdom, I don't know if it was true, was simply that, you know, kids have to spend their money on junk like school books and notebooks and pencils and paper and stuff because they're going back to school. No idea if that was really what was going on, but that's what we all thought. And so... That book was, those books began to be released in September and they sold great. So we took care of that September business. But the downside of that was that then the editor in chief at Marvel, Jim Shooter, came back to the X teams and said, all right, next year you're doing another crossover. Right. It's going to be this. You had Fall of the Mutants, you had Inferno, you just had one after another after another. Sure, sure, sure. Well, it was going to be a year later in the next September, another crossover. It's going to be this. And, he had an idea for, I don't know what his idea was, but, but Wheezy and Chris both would rather have done their own ideas. And at that time, that was still possible. So they said, no, no, we have an idea for a crossover. I don't think they actually did at the time, but they worked one out. But from sort of that point on, crossovers began to become mandated. 
You will have one every this year. You'll have one next year. Now, Chris and Wheezy had actually been working toward the Inferno crossover from pretty early on because, well, this is the whole X-Men stuff. I would let her and Chris talk about it. But <laughs> essentially, it was like trying to solve the problem of Cyclops. When X-Men, X-Factor began, um, the idea was to use the original X-Men, and that meant taking Cyclops out of X-Men in order to put it in the X-Factor. And, um, you know, Chris wasn't a very happy guy about that. Um, and, you know, Scott was married and had a kid over in the X-Men. So editorially, basically, those characters were divorced. They were not divorced in real life in, in the continuity. But basically, Chris kept Maddie and the baby, and X-Factor got Cyclops. Mm-hmm. And that meant that Cyclops, who'd always been a complete straight arrow up to that point, suddenly blew off his wife and kid to go back and hang out with his old girlfriend which was very un-Cyclops-like, I must say. Right. Um, so, <laughs> I he, remember and, that. <laughs> and Chris did not want, so he said, as far as he was concerned, Cyclops was dead to him in the sense that he did not, he was, he did not let Maddie and the baby go over to X-Factory. He didn't want Cyclops in X-Men. So it really isolated Cyclops and, and Maddie and the baby. And so when I began, when Wheezy took over the writing X-Factory, which was about issue six, and she and Chris were good friends. I think we're good friends. They began, he began thinking about what to do about this and how to handle it. And because there were already a lot of stuff kind of established, you know, the X Factor issues. I know when I got onto it, um, I think I got on right in the, at the beginning of the Mutant Massacre. I began drawing that book right with the Mutant Massacre as I was writing Thor for the same thing. Um, essentially, um, they decided to work at this long storyline that would kind of solve this problem. We and I did a bit in our own comic in X Factor where it looked as though Maddie was dead. The baby was missing and they found a body was Maddie. It really wasn't. But but what that did was it kind of took the pressure off having to explain every 20 minutes why Psych wasn't back with Maddie again. Um, but then she and, she and Chris worked out the Inferno stuff as a way of getting at what to do, you know, with the characters as they had developed. I mean, a lot of people groused about it. I see, I still see grouses about that in the web. On the other hand, I will say, as far as I can tell, it was a very rich field for Cyclops, who became a much more complicated character and about whom a lot more stories with a lot more complexity have been written since those days. Absolutely. I definitely think that's why. Well, back to X Factor, when we right. were uh, reading the Mutant Massacre crossover, we realized, you know, you left us on art at Thor and you were actually cheating on us drawing X Factor. So we, we wanted to talk about that. Like, when did you decide to stop drawing Thor and why? Why did you leave us? You know, I think I, I did it for two and a half years. Uh, I was writing, penciling, and inking the book. And I think after two and a half years, I was kind of tired. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I thought, uh, you know, I, I had done a fill-in issue. After I finished the Surter Wars, um, I had done a fill-in issue that Sal Buscema drew. And it was, mm-hmm. it was a fill-in in the sense that I didn't draw it, but it was a part of the continuity. It was Thor meets his great-grandfather and doesn't know what it is, but they have this story. And that's one of my favorite stories. Like 355, I think. That's one of my favorite stories yeah. of the run that I did. Yeah, the one with mm-hmm. Tiwaz um, of the Wastes. I love that issue. I love that character. And I, I love their conversation. It, not a lot of action, I, but I love their conversation. And, and it's like, it's a little meditation about death, about the meaning of death in a sense. And that's, Weezy did one herself. She, when she was doing the New Mutants, uh, she had a character named Doug. Doug Ramsey, Cypher. Oh, Ramsey, that's right. Yeah. I was thinking of Doug Wilder, the artist. I'm going, oh, that can't be right. <laughs> so Doug Ramsey. And, you know, his power was to be able to decipher languages. And in a sense, in a comic, the problem with that is it's not very visual. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you have to have storylines where every, every month you suddenly say, oh, look, 
we found this encrypted message. Doug, could you read this for us, please, before we go on and do anything else? And just stuff like that. And so, and, and Doug was getting a lot of flack in the mail at the time. So ultimately, uh, she decided to off him. Uh, she, she did what she usually does, which is she, she, if she offs a character, she always has a way of bringing him back or her back. It would depend on who the character was. But she worked it out. Doug croaked. Uh, and there were two things that came out of that. One, there was a great issue after he's dead where Warlock, who was his friend, goes back and basically pulls Doug up out of the grave because he doesn't understand what death is, and he's trying to reanimate him and get him to move around. And, and uh, that's one of my favorite issues at Weezy because it's, it's a little meditation about death, and in some way different, but a little, little meditation of death. I did. I'm not saying it was inspired by Weezy. Cause I don't, I'm not sure what time they were written, but they were both thoughts about what it means when somebody checks out. And so I really like I like that stuff. The other thing that happened was that I mean I still see people on the web that are angry about that story every once in a while. It just cracks me up. It's like oh, yeah. thirty years. Get over it. And Doug's already but, come back like twice. <laughs> but but one of the uh, we got, we usually got a letter that was just, it was one of our we had two or three letters we remember because they're some of our favorite letters and it was just great. And somebody some some kid wrote Weezy and said you know I always hated Doug, <laughs> but now that but now that he's dead I realize. He was always my favorite. Oh, that's Aww. perfect. Oh, man. Was, okay. You know, the prosecution rest. So, <laughs> it was just funny. So that was all that stuff was mixed together. As far as getting off Thor, I think I was just tired. I loved what Sal had done on 355. Um, Sal is a wonderful storyteller. We were all, this was all done Marvel style. I did a plot. Sal, you know, most comics at Marvel were done that way then. Not, not now, but then. And he would draw the issue. He'd pencil the issue. I'd get the pages, I would write the dialogue from his art, and I would send it back, and he would ink it. Um, and really, his, it's hard to describe. There are some people who can put pictures together in continuity, one after the other, across pages, and it's very easy to write. Other artists, they have other strengths, that isn't one of them. But one of the things that Sal is phenomenally good at, his stuff, was, it was like butta. If we're spelling <laughs> this, it'd be B-U-T-T-A-H. It was just... <laughs> It was fantastic. And so we had a great time working that book together. I loved what he did. It was a thriller work with Sammy Sama, for goodness sakes. You know, he, I was reading his stuff when I was reading Marvels. Right. So, so he took over the book. Um, the only thing I did do, and it was very kind of South, let me do this. Right toward the end of my run, I, I had been running up to a story where Thor was going to fight the Midgard Serpent. And I, I knew this was coming up somewhere, some months down the road. And I could not figure out what to do with it. I could not figure out how to handle it. Because for one thing, the Midgard Serpent is so big, he actually encircles the world under the ocean. And, and I always seem to be giving myself these problems with continuity or with pictures where I have vast foes fighting tiny heroes, or that's mostly what happens. Giant, giant things and little things in the same picture, which is, it's tough to draw. It's tough to figure out how to draw that. And so I thought about it. I also want to make the fight seem really large. So I, I debated, well, I could, I could have a couple pages of fight, and then I'll cut away to a subplot, and then I'll come back to the fight and cut away. And the idea is that cutaways would make the fight seem longer. They were, obviously, they were fighting while we were off seeing somebody else. And I just, you know, nothing was really very satisfactory. And finally, literally one day, probably in the summer, or it was warm weather, we, were, we, were, we, lived, we lived in the city still, went to our favorite Mexican restaurant just down the block from us, and we ate there. And 
literally as I was coming out of the door, I was stepping across the threshold. I still remember this. And it was like a light bulb went off over my head. That almost never happens. I, I can't think of another example of that really happening. But it was like, bing, all splash pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's going to be big. It'll be large images. That'll make the drawing a little easier. And uh, um, there had been, John Byrne had done an all splash page issue of the Hulk, which became something of a bone of contention. And eventually it was run in, uh, Alan Milgram ran it in Marvel Fanfare. At the time, I'd heard about it. I'd never seen it. I, I, I could say I was inspired by it. I'm not really sure, but I just suddenly had the idea, however that worked out. And I was so excited by it that Weezy and I, we walked around about three or four extra blocks before I got home while I was thinking about how I wanted to do it and how that would work. It just seemed perfect. And in the end, I wrote all my captions in this, you know, kind of probably not very good uh, faux Viking poetry because I find for myself, if I read poetry, I read it much more slowly than I read prose. I almost have to say it out loud as I'm going along. So uh, I thought if anybody bothered to read the captions, it would slow them down. I didn't, you know, cause it's, you know, essentially it was 24 big panels, a 24 page issue. So it was 24 big panels or 23 really. And, uh, you could just go, you'd be right through it. And this way, yeah, you would have to spend a little time getting through it if you were going to read the captions. And so that's why the, that's why the captions are like that in that particular issue is I wanted to essentially do a little more control of the reader's speed through the book. Right, the whole would you know more thing. And yeah, I remember specifically in that issue, because that's actually one of my favorites in the entire run, when Thor and the Midgard Serpent have that big impact where the Midgard Serpent's head just sort of explodes <laughs> and yep. Thor's falling to the earth. And I love how it just it just slows that down to almost standing still, like as there's more narration and as the fall, you just see like a little bit of it on every page. The, the pacing is just beautifully done. I love it. Well, thank you very much. The one thing I did do, uh, and I, if any Navajos are listening, I hope they will forgive me for this. And I don't know if this is true, but when I was a kid, I read a book about the Indians, probably, well, I think just in general, America, Native Americans in the States, when they were so-called Indians. Um, nicely illustrated, kid's book, uh, like a large picture book with, with a fair amount of copy. And they covered a number of different tribes very briefly, and one with the Navajos. And one of the things that struck me about the the Navajo, the idea of the Navajos, and I don't know if this is true, is when they were weaving rugs, and they wore, of course, really beautiful rugs, there was a concern that you might weave the rug perfectly. And the idea is that perfection was the realm of the gods. So to weave a rug and have it done perfectly would really be an affront to the gods. So the idea was that a weaver would throw in some mist stitch or whatever you would do in weaving. I know nothing about weaving, but whatever it was in weaving you would do, you would, you would weave an imperfection into the rug so that you would not by accident create something that was perfect. Now, again, I, have, I haven't looked this up on Google. I have no idea if it's true. It's the memory I have as a child, uh, but I thought that was a wonderful idea. I love the idea. And so, that is why in the all splash page issue of Thor, the last page is four panels. Gotcha. Because I did not want to do large panels all the way through and achieve perfection by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I like that. I've actually heard the same thing about um, Orthodox Jewish home builders will often leave like a brick uncovered somewhere in the house to, as like a reminder that nothing is perfect. So that that's cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't know if it's true and... 
if some Navajo is listening to this, I can probably get back and let you know. But I, I just as a child in the book I read, I thought that was such a wonderful idea. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Going from that issue to something that I know your, your run is very much known for to the point where we talked about like our favorite one of them in every uh, group of issues. So sound effects, that issue has some incredible sound effects. And we went back and forth because really your whole run does. <laughs> Like, are, were those ones that you did? Were those ones that, like, uh, John Workman did as the letterer? Like, how did those come to be? Because they're just such a part of the visuals. You know, uh, I mean, I've always liked sound effects. I always thought they were really a, a, a big part of comics. Um, they're a big t- storytelling tool. Um, and so when I was in art school, I took a lettering course. Um, and also, I was at the Rhode Island School of Design. Rizzi kind of emphasized lettering in some ways. There was a chancery script, which is a script from... I'm gonna, well, it's an Italian letterer named Origi. Uh, letter is the wrong word, but calligrapher. Um, I'm 15th or 16th century, long time ago. And he wrote a book called On the Just Shaping of Letters. And he did a chancery script. There were a couple of strokes. I can't show you over the phone because I can't do it that way. But he had, did a whole alphabet. They had a wood, a woodcut block print plate made that, and they printed the books showing this. And when I was at RISD, that was a, that handwriting, that kind of writing was very much a RISD thing. And we, we had a, we got a little book that was a reproduction of all of Origi's pages. And then in behind that, there was a translation of all of them, all done in chancery script by a modern calligrapher. And it's similarly to, you know, the words aren't the same, so you, some of the flourishes are a little different. But again, somebody had done, I've forgotten who it was now, but they had done a whole translation and a re-lettering of the entire book, all just in one slender volume. That's not a very long book. Um, so, and I got, I took some other stuff. I became aware of topography, um, just aware of letter forms. I took a, the summer I was there, I had a summer session to, as a transfer student to get in. We had a lettering course, um, in which we actually did stuff where you would construct Roman letters. There was a guy, uh, I can't remember his name either. I've got the book somewhere too. Uh, it's like two initials in the name, but it was, he had made rubbings of the Trajan column in Rome. And then he had worked out the mathematics behind each letter form where, for example, so you could do the arcs and you could construct each of the letters. And for example, the O, capital O, the, the oval that makes the O is vertical. You could run a straight line down the middle, a center line down the middle of it, and it would be vertical. But the inside of the O, which is also an oval, the inner, the inner outline is tilted, I think, four degrees to the right. So you, instead of getting a completely symmetrical letter, what you get is you get a letter that is both straight up and down and slightly bent to the right. And it gives it a dynamism in this very constructed letter. And all the letters are like that. And we actually had to do a word like that in, uh, in the lettering class. We had to construct, we had to choose our own word and then do a, uh, construct it, uh, completely out of the, and with compasses and rulers and stuff like that. So I've loved that stuff since I was at RISD. Um, and eventually, uh, when I came to New York, I was doing my own sound effects. I had done some, and I'd, I'd done a senior thesis that was a comic book uh, when I was at RISD called Star Slammers. I did a lot of playing around typography in that, in I mean, all hand-lettered typography, but in that in that book, in those stories. And then when I got to New York, it was just really a, an extension of what I've been doing already, keep doing that sort of stuff. So for a number of years, in the work that I did in New York, in the early st- days of my career, anything that I inked, pretty much I would have the letterer just do the small letters. They would, they would letter the balloons, they'd letter the captions. I would border the balloons, I would border the captions, I would border the panels, and I would do all the display lettering, sound effects, titles, all that stuff. Because okay. I felt that that made the art 
had more to do with my hand than if I had somebody else doing those big things. The little letters weren't so, we didn't make as much of a difference. And I mean, my little lettering was not great. <laughs> it was passable, <laughs> but that was about it. And so, you know, they could do that stuff much better than I could. But I, I took more time on sound effects than a lot of those guys did. I mean, some of them are brilliant. Gaspar Saladino did some great sound effects. Um, but basically, and also just beautiful letters, hand lettering was really quite lovely. But basically, uh, I did my own lettering sound effects uh, and titles up to, I, until I did Alien for Heavy Metal in 78. John Workman was the art director of Heavy Metal who gave me the gig to do it. Um, and then he was lettering it. And somewhere in there, I discovered John's own lettering and his sound effects. They come out of calligraphy. They come out of, of uh, typography the same way mine do. But he's better at it. And so he's lettered almost everything I've done since those days. Not quite. I mean, a couple of runs that, uh, of comics where he did not do them because he wasn't available. But um, what I'll do is on something like that, like in Thor, I still do it. I will I'll type a bunch of letters that sound like what I think the sound effect should be like. And there'll be a lot extra. There'll be too many letters to fit in the space. And then I just will indicate on an overlay of tracing paper over the artwork when I get it lettered on the boards. I'll put a block, a rectangle in, long and narrow, and or you know at an angle. It'll show where I want the sound effect, the angle I want the sound effect to be. And I give it to John, and John letters have as many letters as he can stick in there. He just he 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 gets his choice for how many. I may have you know twenty E's. He'll cut that down to three. Or whatever, whatever will work. But that's how that stuff comes about. That's really a combination of the two of us. Okay, cool. Yeah, we were always wondering about that. And like every time we thought we knew, we'd sort of switch to one side or the other, and then we'd see some evidence that made it the other way. So thank you for for clearing that up. That's awesome. Oh sure, absolutely. So in the second half of your run, the scope seems to both narrow and become more mythological. How much of that was working with Sabusema, and how much was a deliberate plan? Um, I don't know if I ever have a deliberate plan for stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one thing I, one thing I did plan to do, but I got off the book before I could do it. I was planning on running up to a God giant war, um, which would have been another big story. And my feeling is if you have big stories all the time, they don't seem big. There's no context. It's just big stuff, page after page. And after a while, it's boring. So, my idea was to, you know, I kind of went back to Earth. I kind of focused on some other stuff here and there. Um, some of it was just kind of fun. The credit card soldiers I just thought were funny. I just liked the idea. There was a movie a million years ago in the 40s, I think, where one of the uh, behind-the-home-front war films, I can't remember what it was now. And that, But what I'm remembering is there were some, you know, criminals who were involved in stuff, and then it turns out that, that somehow they're either doing the work of the Nazis or they're doing something that's, you know, helping the war effort against the United States. And, and there's a line, I think I pretty much swiped, or at least that's how I remembered it, where it just says, well, look, we may be crooks, thieves, and murderers, but by God, we're American crooks, thieves, and murderers. <laughs> so they, they quit working for the enemy and go the other direction. And I, I had that vision. I, mean, I, I come out of the Vietnam generation. I was literally... Uh, I graduated from college right at the peak of the Vietnam War. Um, I was I was drafted. I actually flunked my physical. Uh, I have really bad eyesight, so I'm probably about the last guy you want to give a loaded rifle to and put in the jungle somewhere. <laughs> but I did go through that, and I and I had friends who I had friends who went to Nam. I had one friend who was killed over there. There were other friends who went to Canada. There was some other stuff here and there. And it was a tough time to be 21 years old. Yeah. So that was kind of a tip of the hat to some of those guys, as was a, I did a Ryan years later. I have a character in there. He was living out of a cardboard box. It was a tough guy. 
And he was, in fact, named after my friend who was killed. In the comic, his name is Gene Swift. His name was Eugene Swift. It sounds like a comic book name, but that was, in fact, his name. So uh, that was kind of my tip of the hat to Gene and the, and the guys who went over there and served. But I just, you know, I kept it kind of low-key for a while, and then I was going to kind of ratchet back up to, to uh, larger stuff. But then somewhere in there, I think as, as editorial changed, as more orders are kind of coming down from above, uh, the editorial flavor of Marvel was changing some. And I, I could just see that more of my energy, as it were, was being kind of used to deal with stuff in the office in a way that I just wasn't crazy about. And I just thought, you know, I think it's about time for me to retire from this and maybe go do something else. But I was still always drawing X Factor. And then right after, somewhere right after that, I was offered the FF. So I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do that for a while. And uh, I did that for a year and a half. And then, the, you know, I, again, I kind of felt the, kind of pressure in the office in a way that I wasn't crazy about. I thought, yeah, maybe it's just time to move on. I've been, at that time, I've been working for Marvel for like 14, 15 years, something of that sort. And occasionally, a change is as good as a rest. <laughs> well, so talking about that that sort of slower period and also talking about working on other books, um, one thing that we ended up covering that we weren't initially planning to and that led very much into the giant Asgardian conflict that you mentioned was the Balder the Brave miniseries. And I was we were wondering kind of where that came from, because Balder has never really been like, you know, an A-list front and center character. And yet in your run, he became a bigger deal and then even had his own miniseries. So uh, we were wondering, like, what the genesis of that was, of putting him in Star Wars. Oh, I, just, I just always loved Balder. I mean, in the old books I was reading, there's a uh, in the comics I read back in the day, back in 65, um, Stan and Jack were doing a thing called Tales of Asgard. It was a backup story in, in the Journey of the Mystery, which it was then, later became Thor. And one of the first, almost the first issues I read, the first issues I read, there were already a couple of issues into what became a multi-chapter uh, story. And they were, I mean, I think Tales of Asgard, were there like five pages in the back of a comic, maybe? Might have been six, I'm going to say five. So you didn't get very much in every issue. Each one kind of advanced the story plot incrementally. Um, and there was a nice, uh, there was a nice bit there with the, uh, Asgardian warriors, it turned out that the, the great Odin sword, which was called the Over Sword originally, this great sword in Asgard, and I think what was going on, I had to go back and read this later because these were before I was reading the book. I think what happened was they discovered it was just this giant sword and a giant sheath on the, on the floor of Asgard, and um, it was starting to crack. There were cracks in it, and so it turned out there was some, they were being sent out, the, this expedition being mounted to go out and find the evil that was causing this or something along those lines. Anyway, they sailed a big Viking ship out across the sea and then into the ocean, into the, well, actually across the air and then into the ocean. And uh, it had all, you know, it had Thor and Balder and Loki and several bad guys. And that's really where, that's where Fandral and Hogan and, um, and Volstagg were all introduced, uh, as were Crota, Magrat the Schemer, Crota the Assassin or whatever. I've forgotten their names now. <laughs> the scary thing is those are probably not too far off, considering I haven't read that stuff in a million years. <laughs> but I can't remember my own stuff from last week. But... Uh, Basically, uh, at some point, the ship is sailing along, and this great kind of stone dragon is right, I don't know if it rose from the sea, or these giant Jack Kirby hands reaching up toward the sky, and a giant maw opens up in the dragon head, and they're being sucked into it. And Balder uh, grabs a horn and starts, and it, the waves are raging, and the wind is pouring, and rain's coming down. And they, he climbs to the top of the prow of the dragon head of the, of the ship, and nobody's quite sure what he's doing. And they're all freaking out because they're all going to die. And uh, he 
raises the horn and gives this huge blast on the horn. And just as they reach it, the dragon head completely explodes and he saves the ship. And they, they, and I think Thor, as they're getting him off of there, says, let me gently lift him down. And they get him down. So Thor was always a hero to me. It was like, he may have been like the second man of the Thor, but he was, he was great. And so, and I, and I liked that he was a, a little more active than he was in the Norse myths, mostly. Mostly in the Norse myths, he just dies. Right. So <laughs> I just liked him. I was able to use him in the book. Um, and it gave me, you know, in some ways, because he was less developed than Thor, there was a lot that I could do with him that I thought made a really good supporting character with his own backstory and his own, his own tale. And ultimately, I reached a point where I, I was kind of winding this tale through what Thor was doing. And I got permission to do a Balder miniseries. And it, um, you know, Jim was very good about that. And I, I was also inspired by the Jack Kirby Fourth World material over at DC, some of my favorite Jack Kirby books. And one of the things I loved about those books was that it was like a braided storyline. Um, you can read each comic straight through, but the way to read them properly and the way DC finally released them is to read them as they came out. Initially, three issues of Jimmy Olsen came out, I think, and then The New Gods, and then, I forget the order of the others, uh, Forever People, and then maybe Mr. Miracle and back at Jimmy Olsen. And you read them in that order, and what you get is you get this braided storyline. It was like a symphony that Jack was just creating before your eyes of all this amazing stuff. And every issue had some new revelation, some new thing. But they were all on different different levels. I mean, I've said, I wrote an introduction for one of the volumes a while back. And it seemed to me at the time, and upon reflection, that what Jack was doing was telling the story of this great cosmic war on four different levels. So you had the new gods, which was the level of the of the gods, the great warriors themselves in the fight. You had the forever people who were you know, the children of the gods, and for them, war was still an adventure. It was exciting, uh, whereas for Orion and Darkseid actually says it, uh, war, it's the cold game of the butcher. But for these young people, as dangerous as it is, there's still a romance about it. And then you get Mr. Miracle, who, coming out in the time that I think, at the time of the Vietnam War, he's really the conscientious objector. He's kind of put this behind him. Uh, he doesn't want to be involved, and he keeps getting kind of sucked back into it. And then Jimmy Olsen, you get the war at a, at a human level. It reminds me of some of the Doc Smith, E.E. E. Smith, uh, Lensman series books that start off small, and then they get bigger. This is more a braided storyline where you get all these different levels at the same time. And I thought that was just phenomenal. Uh, I could not do it. I couldn't do that kind of a uh, bi-monthly schedule and keep it up and keep going. God bless Jack. But I like the idea, and so the Balder miniseries came out threaded in between issues of Thor. There were, there were, uh, I think there were a couple. You'd read Thor, then you read read Balder, you'd read Thor, you read Balder, and then the last couple of issues of Balder you just read by themselves. And they, in the omnibus, the Thor omnibus that came out a few years ago, Marvel put them in the correct order. So we just read the book right through. You do read the Balder story in the correct order, in the way it's set up. Well, I set it up inside the overall Thor continuity. So I just liked doing it. Mean, it was fun. It was interesting. Love what Sal did. Um, gave me a chance to explore, really, Balder and Carnilla in a little more depth um, in a way that I was happy about and still kind of keep the tragedy of their relationship somewhat alive. Um, <laughs> but that was what was fun. It was just, it was, I just liked the character, and he was, he was fun to fiddle with. And I could, in some ways, I could fiddle with him more than I could fiddle with Thor because Thor had to carry the book. So that was why Balder got got pride of place in some places. That brings us to another thing that you're very well known for, and that is the magnificent hats of your run. And no one has better hats than Carnilla. Like, did you choose her to be just totally awesome? Like, how did you go about designing and assigning these hats? 
Oh, I think I just, I was stealing from Jack Kirby, a steal from the best. <laughs> just, you know, Jack, I mean, Jack did that with Odin. His Odin helmets are just unbelievable. Oh, I, I know. I could never match them. But he'd get, but Carnelia, most of his characters had different outfits every time they showed up, at least the major ones, like, uh, not Thor, but, but a lot of the other guys. Um, and I think, you know, they made the secondary supporting guys, like Odin and Carnilla. Um, Loki's is more or less the same. Well, it's changed off and on. In some ways, I, my guess, it was probably easier for Jack just to reinvent stuff every time than it was to go back and look at the old reference and just, you know, it was easier just to start over. And his imagination was so astounding that it was just, you know, he just put this up together. So I was really inspired by, I don't remember what he did for her now. I remember some of it got a long cloak a couple of times, some other stuff. But I think she had some kind of fancy stuff. I think after Jack was off, it became a lot simpler. And I thought somewhat less interesting. So I was kind of interested in going back and trying to re-energize some of that work with at least a sense of the graphics that had gone before when she was created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, between that and like the fact that the skies of Asgard are always just full of planets and nebulas and stars and everything. Like that was something that both you <laughs> and right. Jack Kirby just... Must be an amazing place to live. <laughs> oh, never boring, yeah. Nope. Well, Thor is such a huge part of your legacy, but how weird is it that people are still analyzing this run 30 years later? Well, I I wouldn't have any money on that 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always thought, well, if any of this has any kind of shelf life and turns up, it'll probably be some French student at Sorbonne writing his PhD thesis on the Thors that I did like, you know, 50 years earlier. Um, so I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted. You know, when you're doing it, you're just doing it. You're, you're making a living. You're having fun. Early on in, in comics, uh, when I get into the business of 72, and friends of mine, Howard Shaken was a really close friend, still is. Uh, some of the other guys, we would sit around shooting the breeze. And all of us at that time thought that comics were on the downhill trend and were going to die as an industry in about 10 or 15 years. Sales were dropping. It's before the direct market had developed. The direct market kind of saved comics at the time, eventually. But sales were tailing off every month. You could see it. You could watch the downhill trend. And, and all of us who got into the business at that time, I mean, we wanted to make a living, of course, but we all wanted to do comics. We really wanted to draw, and we thought, we're going to do them right now. We can still do them, and the industry is still around, because we thought it'd be gone after a while. We'd all have to go out and get real jobs. So the idea that here we are, you know, almost 50 years later, or 45, whatever it is, and, you know, business is still going, and I'm still working, I'm thrilled. <laughs> Neil Adams very rarely fails to remind me that when I first met him, well, I met him several times, and I, I got to know Neil. We were chatting about stuff once. I said, yeah, I thought I'd be in comics maybe I don't know, four, three, maybe four years. Then I would know all the stuff there was no about comics. I'd go off and do something else. And he, he teases me about that every so often because here it is, 10 times that length, and I'm still trying to figure comic books out and trying to get better at it. So uh, he has every right to. But basically, we just, you know, it was just something we wanted to do and, and uh, been lucky enough to do it. Well, and I mean, the I can't remember if that answers your question. I know I kind of got off the off a little bit there, but <laughs> if it didn't answer your question, you can ask me your question again. I'll try one more time. But if that was it, I'm good. No, no, that was great. Um, and I mean, you know, and here you are still doing not only still doing comics, but still doing like Asgardian stuff. Like I've been following uh, Ragnarok, which is freaking great. Um, but it's really cool to see just such a different take on Norse mythology from a creator who, you know, the previous take on Norse mythology that I'm familiar with also did. So. I mean, the idea of doing a, a Thor story that's set after Ragnarok, after the world has just been, like, demolished, is a really cool one. And it's been interesting seeing the things you choose to focus on more or less, like the amount of Dark Elves we see, the amount of Draugr we see. So I know you can't, like, you know, spoil what you have coming, but... 
like uh, or you could or you could you could we wouldn't tell well, anybody <laughs> well we, Weezy is bored with the droggers there may be a few less of them in oh, future okay. issues <laughs> but it's uh but um uh, she is really my my guidepost for an awful lot of stuff I mean not everybody gets to live the one of the best editors comic books ever had so I I, I do take full advantage of that but basically well, for one thing, I, you know, I don't want these two similar to Marvel comics. I don't want anybody from Marvel to send me a cease and desist order. But also, um, it's a long time ago. I mean, that, the, the Ragnarok, the book Ragnarok really came out of, like, 50, well, now it's probably 17, 18 years ago. Uh, Scott Doombeer is a really good friend of mine. He's one of my close friends. He's an editor at uh, IW these days. Back then, he was an editor at Wildstorm. Then Wildstorm got bought by DC. He was a group editor at DC for a while. Eventually, ended up at, Wild, at uh, IW. And he, he spoke to me when it was still just Wildstorm before it got into D.C. I, he said, you know, would you want to go back and do another book on the Norse myths in some way? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. I think that'd be really kind of cool. Uh, but I've got some work to finish up right now. So let me, let me finish the work. I'll think about this and uh, we'll talk. And then 15 years went by. <laughs> I, I had a lot of work to finish, apparently. Um, I kept being offered stuff that I liked doing. And, you know, I, I've been very lucky in that regard. So ultimately, uh, the way it really worked, and I, I can't remember which one, one way or the other. I, one of my four, I taught at the School of Visual Arts for a while. I taught graphic novels uh, over a 20-year period. I was there probably 11 years or so. And one of my students uh, became a really good friend uh, after he graduated. And uh, he puts out T-shirts. I say, I say a kid named Jerry Ma, but he's not really a kid anymore. He's always, he'll always be a kid to me. But Jerry <laughs> has a company called Epic Proportions, and he he does t-shirts and he does some really, really cool t-shirts. We were talking one day and I ended up doing a drawing of Thor and I just, I just did a drawing of Thor of my own. I was not related to Marvel's version or, or exactly the North Smith. It's a little bit different, much more Japanese leg bindings. Um, but I drew it and, and Jerry liked it. He put it on a t-shirt, but I, I didn't have any story for the character. I just did the drawing. And then and one day I was, I think this is when I was driving. This is when Borders was still in existence, so that's how long ago this was. Um, I, I had some pizza. Uh, Weezy was off doing something else. I was by myself. I said, oh, I'll go over to Borders and look at some stuff. And I drove right past our house, and I drove maybe a mile down the road. And uh, I don't, I don't. well, here's why I don't, I don't remember which way this went. I, I did come up with an idea for a Thor story, and it was just involved Thor starting off with Thor in a dungeon, chained up and then he eventually breaks loose and there wasn't much more to it than that i at some point it was a little more like marvel stuff where loki was involved and but i just i just kind of liked the idea i had visuals i saw and so i kind of wrote some stuff down and that was the end of that that didn't go anywhere it did not become a story or an issue of anything um but i'm driving over to borders and and literally that was the other actually that's the other time a light bulb went off there was one more time that was the time i'm about a mile from home on about a four or five mile drive and all of a sudden, it's like, bing, Ragnarok has already happened. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, darn. I didn't really say darn, but I said something else. <laughs> and I turned to, I'm sorry. I, 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 one of the things that you learn, at least for me after a while, it's true for a lot of my friends, you get an idea and you think, oh, this idea is so fabulous. I couldn't possibly forget it. I'll go off and do my errands or I'll do whatever I'm going to do. And I'll come back in a few hours and I'll write this down. And you do it like a dream. You do that. You get back and you go, oh, my goodness. I, I can't remember. I, it involved paper clips and it involved uh, a fern <laughs> and it involved maybe some gravel. I mean, it's just gone. And I just, ah, rats. 
I knew I had turned around. I drove home. I wrote for an hour. And Weezy was still not home. She came over right at the end of the hour as I was finishing up. And what I really wrote was essentially the world of Ragnarok. I figured out that Ragnarok had already happened. Again, you know, you try and tell stories that people haven't read like a million times, if you can. But, of course, people have told billions of stories. So I don't, I don't claim to be the first guy to ever write this story or I won't be the last. But I did have the idea for Ragnarok having occurred. Thor somehow survived. The bad guys won. All the nine worlds collided together to become one vast Dusklands. The sun and the moon were eaten by the wolves who died when he did that, and they fell to the ground. And now the sun and the moon are inside these enormous carcasses of dead wolves, and they're kind of gleaming out through them. And uh, so everything's there's no day, there's no night, there's just kind of permanent dusk. And I got a lot of that stuff. And then after that, that was sort of the world in which this original plot that I hadn't really finished how that fit. That's where that kind of, I, I was trying to think what kind of a world would it be where Thor's in a prison and you know, I can do some of that stuff. And so that the idea of the, of the Dusklands really came not entirely fully formed, but a lot of it was there. And I wrote those notes down and then someone, I got a hold of Scott and I said, I think I finally got an idea that might actually work for a, a storyline. And, uh, I went around in titles for, I thought Ragnarok, I got, my feeling is that as long, you know, it means the doom of the powers, or it's often called Twilight of the Gods. And I kind of feel that as long as Thor is alive, Ragnarok is still ongoing. And that's, that's the story I'm telling. The next, the, the arc I'm going to do won't be coming out for about a year. Um, I've got one more thing to do right now. Uh, I'm doing a commandy challenge, uh, which I'm getting a script on, I think probably in the next week or two. I have to do that next. And then the other thing I'd like to do is I would like to put, to put, maybe five issues of Ragnarok to bed before it starts coming out. So when the next six issues come out, they can come out monthly. They'll be easy to remember and easier to find. Right. Um, so that's the idea. But the next, the next arc is going to be the breaking of Helheim in which the presence of all these Draugar, the walking dead of the Norse myths has disturbed Thor. And there are still ordinary people around who are not completely destroyed by what's happened. And he's, you know, he was always a guardian of ordinary men. That was kind of Thor's role in the Norse myths in some ways, besides being the greatest warrior among the gods. So he's, yeah, and, and also in the poetry, Young led to this story, in the poetry, poetry is not like comics, the Norse, the Elder Edda. Um, in comics, there's a lot of concern for continuity, which I totally get. But in the Norse myths, you know, these are mythological things. They, they're trying to answer questions that comics don't get at very often. I'm not trying to answer those questions. I don't go to comics for my theology, but I'm inspired by them. And in the poetry, when you, there's a poem called Voluspa, which is the Vala's prophecy or the Sibyl's prophecy, which is really where we get most of our information about the birth of the universe and the death of the universe. That's where a lot of the Ragnarok stuff comes from. And in it, the great ship of dead men's nails has been built in hell or Helheim. And it's, it sails carrying a lot of the gods' enemies to the battle plane where they all fight. But there's no mention, sort of in there from then on, ever of hell. I mean, her name is, it's hell at Marvel, it's hell in most of the myths. It's the same name as the, as her kingdom. So I'm, I'm splitting those up. So I'm, hell is the, is the female deity and Helheim is the land of the dead. And so, but hell is never mentioned again after that. And it doesn't matter because it's not, not really what's, what's about. Everything gets destroyed. doesn't make any difference. And since I've got this kind of dusk lens, then the question does begin to arise. What happened to hell? Right, right. Where is she? And that's what, so Thor 
uh, is going to learn a great deal more about what actually occurred while he was in the dungeon. And then he decides that his next journey as a result should be into Helheim, which is going to be this vast pit surrounded by mountains and statues and stuff like that. I probably can't, I shouldn't say, I probably can't draw it big enough to make match anybody's imagination. But the idea is that, and it's not quite like Dante's hell. It will be, I'm not going to have circles of sinners and stuff like that, but it will be a great pit and a great depth down to the bottom. And so Thor is going to enter this and try and stay alive long enough to find out what happened to hell and what, what this, what, where the draugr come from and what's going on. So that's going to be my next story arc. Cool. So, um, for Ragnarok, do you have an end in sight? Like, are is there something that you're specifically? I do, but it's a ways down the road. Okay. Okay. I I hope to live long to finish it. (laughs) I'll be I'll be along for the ride. It's on my pull list every time it comes out. So, (laughs) Uh, well, thank you very much. Well, it'll be a little while before it's there again, but hopefully next time it comes out, you'll be able to pull it every month for six months. Sweet, excellent. Well, for our last question, we want to move to yet another Thor. Uh, Movie Thor, of course, is really different from the comics, but they've also clearly drawn a lot of influence from your books, especially with Thor Ragnarok. So we want to know your feelings on that and what it was like to see Surtur in the new trailer. Looked pretty cool in the new trailer, I have to say. I mean, it looks looks kind of like I I was expected, Um, at least in the very brief shot of his face. Doesn't look all that different from the Balrog and Lord of the Rings to some extent, you know, all that fire and stuff. Looked really cool. Um, and so did the executioner with a couple of M16s or whatever he was carrying. Um, that said, I mean, I really liked what I saw, but I'm also, my real concern, because trailers don't tell you this, my real concern is, I hope it's a good story. Yeah. I hope the writing is good. I hope the story is good. I mean, my favorite parts of the Thor movies so far have mostly been the, I mean, a lot of parts I've liked, but I really, I've loved the interaction between Thor and Loki, between Chris Hemsworth and uh, Tom Hiddleston. That, that makes those movies totally worth, worth watching just for that. And so I'm hoping for more of that. I see a little bit of stuff that looks pretty cool. Um, but I would, I would love some great scenes between the two of them. And overall, I just like the movie to be well written. Be a good story. That's, that's, you know, that's true for anything I want to, I'm going to go see a movie. That's the bottom line. Writers don't very often get a lot of credit for that stuff. They're kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, I think, in Hollywood. But they are the guys who create the foundation that makes all the rest of it possible. And so I'm hoping whoever wrote this, I hope they did a great job. <laughs> Fingers crossed, yeah. Especially, you know, bringing in things like The Executioner's Last Stand. I mean, if that's going to be done, I want to see that done right. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll see how it is. <laughs> Probably won't be quite the way I did it. But, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that'll work. We'll see. <laughs> Hella looks great. She looks, I mean, she looks really cool. So... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I, and I also, I will, I will work to not know too much about the movie before I go to, I like, before I see it, I like to go see films cold if I can, as much as cold as you can make it in the modern world of millions of spoilers and Facebook and social media. But I really like going to see that stuff without knowing too much about it. So I'm, I did watch the trailer, but I throw a lot more trailers or more stuff. I may not watch much of that. I may just want to go to see the movie and just see how it, what I think about it from the movie itself. Sure, sure. All right. Well, we've ended every episode of The Lightning and the Storm so far with our recognitions of merit. And this is no exception, but this time we have the person who created these things. So, Walter, would you be willing to uh, give us your own favorites from your run for each of our categories? I will do my best. All right. In that case, Elizabeth, would you like to intro our first category? Absolutely. We have our crack doom Award, which is your favorite sound effect. 
<laughs> you know, I did a lot of them. I don't remember a lot of them, I don't think. And I haven't gone back and, and, and beefed up in order to do this podcast. But I will say, I thought I did think about that. And I think probably my favorite effect for a couple of different reasons is just the word doom. And that's because it was a sound effect. It was also the title of my first story. It was lettering. I think I did myself on that first story, not John. And it served as a a harbinger of things to come. It was sort of a warning of what was going to happen. So it had multiple meanings, really, in the course of the story, in a way that most sound effects don't. Most sound effects are really instant. They're great. But they're, they, don't have an, they don't have an echo, as that one did, through multiple issues. And they don't come to mean something in quite the same way. So, really, that's my choice. And that is an excellent choice. And yeah, we, just the number of times we got to say that like super dramatically in the show was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So our second category is the Hell's Haberdashery Award for the greatest hat, headgear, helmet, or, you know, whatever. What's your favorite? Um, you know, I would probably pick something that uh, Carnella was wearing. I have to go back and look at it. But I will say this. Uh, this is like for the... For me, for the coolness factor, um, years ago, uh, some years back, Weezy and I were actually given extremely nanoseconds of screen time in the first Thor film. We did little, I did a little cameo. Oh, the feast at the um, end, yeah. Sitting, I'm sitting next to Sif, to Jamie Alexander at the <laughs> banquet scene at the end of the movie. And they, Marvel flew us out there. Uh, they flew out my editor as well from those days, Ralph Macchio. We're all there at the banquet. I, I have a shade more screen than anybody else, but they were the people in the, in the cast and the crew and uh, cast Brown, the director, they were all very kind to us. They were really, they really were swell. And, uh, one of the guys, Kyle took us around to see, uh, some of the stuff behind the scenes, really some of the stuff that they were for an upcoming film of Captain America, which, you know, they're still working on. And I walked into the Thor area, stuff was on the boards and drawings and whatever. I can't remember a lot about it now. But what there was, there was a full-size, I don't know what it was made of, foam maybe or something like that. There was a full-size Balder helmet from the miniseries, from the design that I had done. It was my design done full size. I, I only regret I didn't ask if I could have it. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be mine. Seeing it sitting there on the shelf, and it was kind of like a uh, terracotta. It was like a terracotta color. And it's, I don't know what it was made from, but it was just so awesome to see it sitting there on the shelf. So even though I did a lot more other elaborate, more elaborate headdresses, I, I got a soft spot in my heart for that because apparently Balder was somewhere in the mix initially and, you know, went away. I, I understand that. But seeing his helmet sitting there on the shelf was just fantastic. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, if you had ended up uh, taking that, if I were you, I just would have worn it all the time, like a kid with a new tie. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the time, especially the conventions. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, next we have the Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award for Worthiest Inanimate Object. <laughs> I don't know how many enamel objects I drew exactly in that book. That's, that's kind of, but I, I will say, honestly, probably my favorite is Mjolnir. It probably is the hammer. And that's partly because when I, got a, when I began reading Marvel Comics, the first comic I ever read, a Marvel comic really, was uh, Journey into Mystery 120, which was the beginning of a four-part story 
uh, with Thor and Loki, the Absorbing Man. It was his return, his second appearance, and Odin, a bunch of other stuff. And the, the splash page is with my hammer in hand, but I think the cover had something in my hand, this hammer. I was like, oh, they, weren't, they weren't too cautious about that stuff. And, and the opening splash page is Thor wearing these really, you know, wearing goggles, like safety goggles, uh, facing the audience, sticking the hammer right in your face, uh, with a couple of some very crazy Jack Kirby pantographic grips or something around the handle. And basically, and a couple of steel workers behind him and some flames in the foreground. There's no background. He did a background on the next page. But it's very simple. But basically, it, it turned out, I had the, I think it's covered in the comic. I saw the issue later. The previous two issues, Thor had fought the Destroyer in the Destroyer's first appearance. And at the climax of that, before when Thor was getting his rear end handed to him, uh, he's got the hammer out and the destroyer brings up his hand and fires some beams and he cuts the hammer in half. He cuts the head of the hammer in half. And so Thor can't use it anymore. So in this issue, which is the first issue I ever saw, Mjolnir is sticking there right in your face as Thor is reforging the hammer in the steel mills of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And it was just... It was fantastic. So years <laughs> later, when I was doing, I, when I made that Odin and the dwarves make Stormbringer for Beta Ray Bill, I gave them a bunch of goggles when they were in the, in the dwarf forges. And I remember somebody on the web going, what does Odin need goggles for? And my feeling, it's like a joke. If you have to have the answer that, you don't get it. <laughs> it was just so cool. That was exactly why it was like that. And it was the tip of the hat to this early, my first issue of Thor. Sure, so sure. I, I have to go with Mjolnir as my favorite object. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure Mjolnir is entirely inanimate. I don't have to go into that, so I'm not gonna try, I don't try and figure it out. I just know how it works. But yep. that would be my choice. And, of um, course, Thor revisits that Pittsburgh Forge in your run. Well, <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to keep stuff. You know, I, I remember the old stuff, and I like to tip my hat to it when I can. Sure, yeah, sure. I always love the little captions. This happened before in an issue of Thor that most of you probably don't remember. Like, I love there this. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, for our, our final category of the recognitions of merit, we have the most metal moment for the sequence scene or whatever that was just the most emotionally intense and over the top and would best fit into a heavy metal song? You know, I I have to say I would probably go with two. I'm going to cheat. And there may be others, but the two that, that come to mind, at least instantly, one of them is Scourge's Last Stand in Hell, where he's facing down the, the, the hordes of hell as they're trying to get across the bridge and get after Thor. And he dies. And that's, that's one of my favorite scenes in the stuff that I wrote. And the other one's gotta be the, this, that single panel where Thor and Loki and Odin are facing off against Surtur. And it's for Asgard, for Midgard, for myself. And it sort of encapsulates, I thought in some ways encapsulated the characterization of all three of those characters in like two words each. So I'm pleased about that too. I don't, I'm not quite sure it's as metal. It leads to a big fight. So that's pretty metal, but that would be, those two are my choices. Oh man. And yeah, both excellent choices. I think we, uh, we definitely chose Scourge's last stand and got in, in the war with Surtur, the very end of it right there, when it's just the three of them standing between Surtur and like the annihilation of the world tree. Oh, that's right. So that's great. right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I mean, we could go on forever, but I guess podcast episodes are supposed to be finite, so we should probably finish up. But thank you so much for for agreeing to talk to us. And also just thank you for making such an incredible run of comics that we've been able to just spend so much time going into and enjoying and helping other people enjoy. Like, your work has been awesome and getting a chance to finally talk to you has been a dream. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much. 
Well, thanks for having me. I this is going to be a much longer podcast than I ever expected. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh no, I, I don't think anybody's going to complain. <laughs> yeah, but nope. but thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, we will uh, see you in your uh, your future Ragnarok work and uh, whatever else you happen to do. We'll be following that as well. So yeah, and thank if you, you uh, ever come to Portland, you know we've got a pretty good convention here, Rose City Comic Con. Oh, that's all I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take yeah. care. So that was pretty awesome. Right? Like, I, I never once dreamed, like, I mean, even once I already was a comics podcaster, that we would actually get to talk to Walter Simonson. I, I mean, know. His comics were my freaking bedtime stories when I was a kid. Of course, this was a dream of ours, but it was actually brought into being by a Twitter follower, Damn Good Biscuits, who added me and Walter Simonson and said, hey, you guys should do uh, an interview. And Walter Simonson was gracious enough to say, sure. Yeah, and he was all low pressure about it. Like, only if you guys want to. And I mean, of course we wanted to. I mean, is the show officially over? Yes. Are we going to break that rule for an interview with Walter Simonson? Yes. Has our producer officially retired from doing any podcast other than his own? Yes. Did we drag him back in for one last ride? Yes. Well, your email <laughs> that had that information about Walt Simonson had 10 exclamation points. <laughs> so I figured it had to be pretty important. <laughs> yeah, it was like half extreme excitement and half like almost nausea, like this very like, oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, so that is us and that is this. That is our, our special 14th totally unexpected episode of The Lightning in the Storm. So listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us. And if for some reason you've come in with this interview, like you just heard about it, and you want to go hear us talk exhaustively about Simonson's entire run, then boy, have we ever got 13 other episodes before this waiting for you. Yes, we do. You will find us on the lightninginthestorm.com and we talk a lot about these very things, including sound effects, hats, uh, messy love triangles, and uh, alter egos, um, how you can use glasses as a disguise, and, and much more. There's so much good stuff. <laughs> uh, so I suppose that's it, and I think this is actually for real our last episode this time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but thank you all so much for for joining us, for making this happen and, you know, for leading up to us getting to talk to Walter Simonson about so many awesome things. Yes. Thank you very much, listeners. You've all been wonderful. You know, again, this is my first full on podcast and it's been a wonderful experience due in large part to you. And of course, Miles and Kyle. Oh, well, thank you for, for being a part of it. <laughs> and with that. Lightning in the Storm has been produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. It has been an honor and a privilege to take this journey through Walter Simonson and Sal Buscema's masterpiece. And an absolute pleasure to do so with you, our listeners. Thank you for riding beside us to witness the heights of heroism and the depths of villainy. This tale is told, but there are many others. Perhaps we'll see you again in one of them. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for, for Asgard! Asgard!